0: You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. (laughs) The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen.
1: Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we're talking with author and HR consultant, Tim Ringo, about ways to improve productivity. Always a timely topic, and one I think all of our listeners will find extremely useful. Tim has just released a new book titled Solving the Productivity Puzzle, How people engagement, innovation, and performance will transform work. I can't wait to hear his thoughts. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
0: The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal.
1: Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to Workplace Perspective, Tim Ringo.
0: Hi, Teresa.
2: Thanks very much. Glad to be here.
1: I'm really happy to have you here. So before we get started, as we always do, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Sure. I've got a 30-year career in HR consulting and HR software. Most recently, I was a senior executive at SAP SuccessFactors, big um, HR software. Before that, I was a senior executive at Accenture and IBM. So my topic over the past three years has been HR, helping organizations transform HR. So um, I just recently retired from SAP SuccessFactors and what well, I call it pro-tire because I'm still doing fun things like uh, like this, doing podcasts and, and uh, writing books. So yeah
1: a general perspective, why don't you share with our listeners what it is, how you see the productivity puzzle that's to be solved?
2: It really came from a paper that I saw in 2018 by the OECD, which was, if I recall the, the title correctly, it was projecting GDP out to 2060. Sounds like kind of a boring topic, but, um, you know, essentially it was looking out 50 years and saying, well, where are we going to be? And it was very pessimistic, so there's going to be continued downward pressure on GDP because people productivity is going to continuously decline over the next 40 or 50 years. And I thought, wow, that doesn't really fit with what I've seen uh, in my career. But they made three points, which I think were really good. First of all, that organizations, They're not investing enough in aligning people to new technology. And they're not aligning processes or you know, transforming their processes to align to new technology. And lastly, they're not changing their organization structure to take advantage of it. And I totally agree with those things. But, you know, they were basically saying that's how it's going to be from now into the future. When I've seen organizations, particularly, you know, public sector and private at the moment, they are working on all three of those things. And I think there's new technologies that have come along that are helping as well. So they were overly pessimistic, and I'm an eternal optimist. So I thought I'd go away and, and you know, have a look at this and, and really take what I've seen work over the last 30 years and put that in a kind of conversational books and here's some ideas and how to address it.
1: It's amazing. The idea that technology and the integration and that's a reason for a, a drag on GDP is really interesting. And I, like you, am an eternal optimist when it comes to these things. And I do think that one of the positive aspects that we're seeing now uh, with the pandemic is that the future has come to us much sooner. Are you seeing these technologies and the integration of these technologies as bringing all of these predictions, hopefully setting off course some of the negative aspects of this particular report that you looked at?
2: Um, I do. I think to kind of look at the present and then look into the future, you know, one of the things that I've seen that works really well, and I, and I write about it in the book and created a really simple equation, quote-unquote equation, which essentially is this, getting right people, right place, right time, right skills, right motivation, which is really, really important. Organizations that do that, guess what? They're highly engaged workplaces, they're innovative workplaces, and they're high performing. And so what I've seen is that organizations were already on a path to start to do some of this and use some of the new technology, change their processes, change their organization structures, and really adapt to this model. And what's really interesting is that the pandemic has actually caused that to be accelerated. So I think what I'm seeing, certainly what I'm seeing at the moment, is that the, the pandemic has knocked us onto a different path like a lot of crises do. But this time it's a good path, right? And I think it's one that's going to address these things that the OECD were talking about because you know, productivity took a huge hit when we all had to suddenly stop working or work from home and we're gonna have to get back on track. And so I think we're gonna see a lot of focus on these things. So I'm quite optimistic that the pandemic, despite the tragedy, has at least in the workplace, I think put us on a better path.
1: Tell me what your thoughts so are. We sort of talked a little bit about this before, but tell me what your thoughts are because they're kind of unusual when it comes to the workforce and you know what you think differing ideas as to what a traditional workforce should look you know traditional workforces look for certain type of degrees and great productivity and all of these you know high you got to be at the best of what you do and you got to have this you got to have that your views seem to be a little bit different and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that.
2: So I look at a number of things in the book that, you know, that we can address trends that we can take advantage of now. One right now that I think is really important is that we have been limiting our talent pools for too long. We're looking for people who look like us, right? And I think we have to think. Broader. And in order to solve the productivity problem, we need to get all six generations in work, for example. So, you know, the fastest growing workforce demographic in the US right now is 75 and over, right? And those, and I think that's going to continue even through the pandemic. And we need to get those folks in. We have to learn how to recruit them, put them in place. Cause guess what? Young people love to learn from older people. The, the millennials are exceptionally good at reaching out to older people to learn something, right? And the older people love it, right? So we got to get those two ends of the spectrum work, you know, more of them in work and working together. Inside of that, I think we need to take advantage of another pool of talent, which I'm a big fan of. Is those are on the autistic spectrum, and it is a spectrum of lots of different things. But people um, on the autistic spectrum have some talents you can't get anywhere else. And I think you know organizations like SAP and Microsoft and Walgreens, you know, are having specific programs to recruit people with autism. And it's because they bring—they bring particular skills. They—they they have what's called a different brain. They see things differently. They come up with different solutions that other people wouldn't have, right? And I think we need to get a lot more of of those people in the, in the workplace so disabled people and we just need to expand that pool and one of the other questions that i recently put on a blog that i just put an article that i wrote this week was are we limiting ourselves by saying you need to have a degree for certain jobs you know should we just be looking more at the experience the skills the capability of the person and the degree is a hygiene factor and i think we, we are potentially limiting ourselves by um you know only searching in pools of people with a degree so those are some of the things I looked at, and I think those will help solve the productivity puzzle if we just expand, you know, what we mean by, um, you know, the, the the talent pool.
1: Absolutely. I think there's a lot of merit to that. I think that we have become sort of, I don't know if it's a product of our own success or not, or I always look at it like each generation wants better, and mm-hmm. we've achieved that. But at some point, I think we have. That's also become a, a barrier. Like you said, you know, I spent my career in litigation, you know, litigating in the workplace for people with disabilities. And I wholeheartedly believe, you know, the state's laws, you know, that support that are that these are valued workers. We shouldn't be throwing away workers because of perceived or actual disabilities. And the educational thing, too. I think that we have gotten away from the idea that you can have a lot of experience, a lot of life experience, a lot of work experience as truly valuable Without having had gone to school to get a certificate or something behind your name, I think it's a false sense of the false sense of education. That's not what I mean, but it's this false sense that if you have, if you have a degree or you have, you know, initials behind your name that you're some sort of, you know, you're going to be good for the job.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's not always the case. So yeah, totally agree. You know, one of the other things I looked at around productivity was we're not even defining it correctly, right? That was one of the first challenges I came to when I started to write the book, which is like, I literally went and looked it up and it was all about inputs, outputs, you know, as a ratio of X, Y. And it was was very early 20th century. And that's not what the, the 21st century is like. And so in the book, I come up with a new definition of productivity that says, look it's about certainly about the physical side right because we're in a capitalist society I mean even the communist Chinese are capitalist but there's these other elements which is, that need to be taken into consideration which is you know the person the organization society as a whole and it should be all of those interests being balanced when we're talking about productivity and we should put in place opportunity for people to flourish create higher engagement more innovation and I think this expanded definition allowed me to, to broaden the book quite significantly otherwise it've been a very boring academic book on, book on productivity, <laughs> but, uh, but it's which a I serious point. <laughs> yeah, it's <an> exactly <laughs> a serious point, though, which says we need a three dimensional right that looks at the whole thing. You know, the people, the organization, and society as a whole, um, and we we measure productivity on on that as well as the physical side.
1: I love it. I want to hear more about it. We're going to take a quick break. I'm getting the signal, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more on Tim's uh, insights into proving productivity. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmeen, who was
1: living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach.
3: Or if that resume was from someone who
0: worked 12-hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day.
3: We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone.
0: Growing up where I did, a lot
2: of things could have gotten in the way of my goals, but I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work
3: every day. So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to Grads of Life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. (laughs)
1: Don't miss Workplace Perspective, the only show giving you both the employer and the employee workplace perspectives. With me, your host, Teresa McQueen, every Wednesday at 3.30 p.m. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with author and HR consultant, Tim Ringo, about improving productivity. So let me ask you, Tim, do you think that sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between Corporate goals, which tend to be very long-term, growth, profit, and that, and worker needs, which tend to be more short-term. We look short-term when we're workers. We look at wages and working conditions and transparencies and promotions. And in looking at productivity, did you find any new or innovative or interesting ideas with regards to how both sides can kind of get better at connecting those dots so that they're more aligned more together and they're thinking as they look towards the future.
2: Well, you know, actually one of the things I found is the biggest barrier to strategically addressing productivity is the quarterly focus of public companies, mm-hmm. right? So they have both a very short-term point of view and also a very long-term point of view, but very often that quarterly pressure um, focuses them on that. And that's where you start to see a disconnect. And so I find actually that it's the more short-termist thinking that sets the danger. And that, you know, that drives transactional behavior that makes it very, very hard to align people's goals to the organization's goals. Um, and this is why, you know, What I call PEIP, what I said earlier, which is right people, right place, right time, right skills, right motivation, which is people engagement, innovation and performance. You know, that is key to it, saying let's disconnect from this kind of quarterly treadmill and say let's look at things more long term rather than transactional to this quarter. And, to, you know, to profit. And there's been a lot of conversation. It's been in the U.S. and in Europe where this crisis is, you know, called into question again, the profit modem. You know, a lot of people are stepping back and saying we had a near death experience. And, you know, is this the way I want to live my life? And, you know, people are starting to say and you hear CEOs saying, well, maybe profit isn't everything. Maybe we need to slow down to go faster mm-hmm. You know, slow down to go faster. And I think part of that is taking, you know, backing off the quarterly pressures.
1: I think that's interesting. I I think all that also connects to the idea that I always think of the workplace relationships, the relationships that employers have with their employees, like any other relationship you have in your life. If you experience a bad relationship or a bad experience on either end of that. And then it colors everything going forward, whether it's exactly. trust issues, you know, an employer gets burned by an employee in whatever it yeah. might be. And so they throw up a bunch of policies and a bunch of procedures in place to, well, we're going to prevent that. And then you suddenly find the wall getting very tall, uh, between the yeah. two.
2: Yeah. And that's why you see a discussion now and certainly, and there's a great case study and I have it in the book. It's about Spotify where the, the CEO, Daniel Eck was, um, very much kind of a, con, you know, control oriented person. And he ran everything, but he realized in order for the company to grow, he was going to have to step back. And he said he really needs to earn the trust and the respect of employees. Rather than constantly micromanage them, he stepped back and said, I'm not running this place anymore. You guys run it. And he created these self-directed teams. And, you know, they have had fantastic innovation um, come out of that. But at the end, you know, he said, look, I earned their respect by changing the way I do things. And he he stepped back from being transactional and, you know, focused on, you know, every little aspect. And it saved the company because, you know, iTunes was going to eat their lunch. Right. Um, and he credits with, you know, this change in mindset that he had to, to saving the company. It's a great uh, Harvard Business Review case study, but it's in the book as well. It's a good example.
1: It's amazing to... To me that someone can be that self-aware and some of our, as you're talking, I'm thinking of two other really amazing CEO company owners we've had on the show in the past who sort of came to the same conclusions that I'm not the end all be all and I don't need to be. All and everything for the company. I need to step back. I've hired good people and I need to let them do, you know, what they do. One, one of my favorites said something that was so funny. It was about, so one of the first things he realized. So there's always a point in a company, been with a lot of companies, right? So when a small business gets fast growth, they get to a point where at some point there's a definite change. If we're going to take this company forward, we need to do X, Y and Z. And for this CEO, it was. You have to fire all your friends and family. Yeah, yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah, uh, but in all seriousness, it's it is important when you get to that that stage, right? And now you're almost kind of
1: saying, yeah, you're almost kind of saying, well, in an essence, you kind of need to fire yourself at that point because you you know you need to step back. It's a good point to step back to kind of keep rolling forward. Well,
2: that's what he did. He he decided to slow down to go faster, and it was. But the other thing he demonstrated was EQ, right? Where he wasn't before, and this is where I think another benefit of the crisis is. That we're going to see leaders who have high EQ, we're going to see them rise to the top because they looked after people during the crisis and people are never going to forget that. The, man, the leaders that didn't, I think are going to be dinosaurs. And it's, it's almost like the meteor came down and hit the earth and, and wiped out the dinosaurs. Well, the pandemic's going to do that to a certain extent in the workplace where I strongly believe that the leaders with the high EQ are going to really rise to the top now. And that's going to, again, change the workplace and change the dynamic, which, you know, as you were saying, I think it'll move away, hopefully from more transactional type workplaces to more engaged workplaces.
1: Well, I think I always talk about this idea of, you know, what does it mean to work? We need to talk about what does it mean to work now? And you're right. This is, you know, this is charging that conversation to the forefront, because I think that you're saying in the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs are going to be the ones that say, okay, the pandemic's over, God willing, as soon as possible. Right. But pandemic's over time to come back to work. And we're just going to chuck everything we've been doing. I I truly believe there's people going to do there's there's businesses that are going to do that. They're going to lose people right, left and center.
2: They will. Cause there's pent up demand and there's going to be loads of, of jobs once we get, you know, this, get past this and people are going to go gravitate towards those organization and those leaders that um, looked after people. I, I just see it over and over again in my career. And I think this is going to be a great opportunity for those leaders to emerge now. Some of them are younger, younger leaders as well. So.
1: Yeah, I do too. And I've, I've seen it across all of my clients, you know, and, and other businesses that I've been involved with leaders have, this is the time where leaders really show.
3: And yeah, those or that not. can't lead, or, <laughs> or not right, and those that are
1: not doing such a good job of it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let me ask you this, because you've, you've worked all over the world, so and you have extensive experience on these types of issues. So, what are some of the aspects that you see across the globe that are repeated, positive things, and things that are different? Mm-hmm. And so, tell yeah. us a little bit about that.
2: Well, you know, the number one thing that I've seen is that every human that I've run into no matter what culture all they want to know is when they've done a good job yeah they just want to be um you know appreciated and when that doesn't happen enough then work just becomes work um and I'm not saying you know go and like lavish your your workforce right. with praise so choose those moments where it really means it to somebody and it doesn't matter what culture you go into it's the same everywhere humans are like that everywhere but they also want to know when something isn't right but this is where you have to be careful because in China, for instance, the, and in a lot of parts of Asia and the Middle East, you know, it's really important to save face. You can't go in and say, you shouldn't have done it like that. You should do it like this, right? And so there is cultural differences there. But what I found is even in those cases, you know, in places where I've had teams in China, I found a way to give feedback that didn't make that person feel ashamed or whatever, you know, whatever the local culture is is like. And so that is one thing that that's different about eastern and western cultures that you have to be careful about. But I still found people wanted to hear feedback, you know, how can I get better? So humans are like that all the time. They want to know when they've done a good job and they also want to know but I've done that better. It's just different ways of, of handling that.
1: I love that. I love knowing we're all at the core. We all have we have the same core desires and needs. I, I love that. So as we kind of wrap up the show, do you have because you said stories? So and our listeners love stories. So yeah. do you have a favorite story that you can share with us about a productivity, success, or a disaster? People love failures too. So
0: <laughs>
1: people love to hear um, about. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I've got uh, quite a few failures. Well, I mean, I, I'll... I'll <laughs> I'll kind of build on that example where I was in, a, I was doing a speech, a keynote speech in Asia. This is a few years back. And I was asked by the, the conference organizer to sort of talk about East versus West and what the, what the East could learn from the West. And you know, one of the things I said, which I thought was what well, I thought was important, but I said, well, look, you know, the best thing about, you know, being in the East, if you're looking towards the West, look at our mistakes, right? And avoid those. You've got an advantage in doing that. Anyway, afterwards, a, a party official came up to me very agitated and said, you know, you can't say that. You can't say that. And besides, we're going to beat you no matter what, you know, the West. Coast. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really. Bad. Anyway, he asked me to come out to dinner. And this is where I learned my lesson uh, about the one I just talked about. We went out to dinner, had a great time and talked about this idea of Asian culture versus, you know, Western culture and the idea of how saving face is important. And you mustn't go up on a stage and say, you know, you should do this. And, <laughs> and I just thought that was really interesting. And, and that helped me in my career going forward. We were still best friends today. We're still in touch. So, um, but uh, yeah, it just shows that that uh, things can be you know quite touchy at moments. But then, then next thing you know, you're best friends.
1: (laughs) Right? I love it. I love it. That's the art of you know that's the art of communication that you're talking about. This idea that you can found a way to preserve that relationship that they were you know that he was just starting to build with you in such a great way. Great story. Thank you so much for sharing. Pleasure. Well, we're going to wrap up our show today. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. You've provided some really great information, and I so appreciate your time. Thank you, Teresa. That's our show, everyone. I want to tell you that you can learn more about Tim and his new book, Solving the Productivity Puzzle, How People Engagement, Innovation, and Performance Will Transform Work, by visiting Tim at www.timringo.com. That's t i m r a n g o dot com. You can also connect with Tim via our website at sapphirelegal.com slash podcast. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspective's team extraordinaire, our engineer producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar.